Please read along with me from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Romans 3, 19 through 26. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. While we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned, we fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, David. The cross is at the heart of our Christian faith. We wear it around our necks. We decorate our buildings with it to remind us of the fact that the cross is at the center. One-third to one-half of the Gospels are devoted, devoted to the suffering and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in his epistles, devotes extensive space uh, to efforts to explain the significance of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. And he summarizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first several verses, that he's declaring to them of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Earlier, he wrote, as we studied last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The understanding of the significance of the death of Jesus on the cross and what it achieved and the multifaceted aspects of its achievement are important. There are a variety of images in the scriptures that are used to help us to understand what the cross of Christ accomplished. These images or metaphors help us to kind of get a broad picture of what Jesus has done. We're going to look at some of those this morning. Each of the images that we look at are related to one another. It's in a sense like looking at a cut diamond from various angles. It's so splendid that you really can't comprehend it all with one image. And as John Calvin said, uh, there is no language that can fully represent the efficacy and the consequences of Christ's death. 
to a certain extent, though we understand something of what the cross means, we must admit that so much of it is a mystery to us. Uh, even some of the songwriters say, "'Tis mystery all uh, that Christ should die for us." So we're going to look at some of these uh, images, some of these metaphors this morning, and help us to understand more completely what was achieved by the work of Christ on the cross. The first image that we're going to look at is what we might call atonement or sacrifice. In the text that uh, was read for us by David, it says in verse uh, 25, uh, he says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. A sacrifice of atonement. There are other places in Scripture where Jesus is called the Lamb of God. In the book of John, when John sees Jesus for the first time, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are other places in Ephesians chapter 5 and in chapter uh, 9 of Hebrews where, again, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Now that perhaps is one of the images that is the most extensive in Scripture, but it's also the most challenging for us to understand. It's in images of sacrifice that were made for the sin of the people. But that's an image that does not communicate very well to us in our contemporary society. Jesus sacrificed as the Lamb of God. When's the last time you actually saw an animal slaughtered? However, in the days of the Scriptures, in the Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures, the Jews were still sacrificing animals on the altar. They understood the concept of atonement through substitution. Even from the very beginning, based on the Old Testament story of the fall of man, an animal was sacrificed so that the skins could cover their fall, their nakedness. And then as you move on in the New Test Old Testament, uh, some of us said you can follow the scarlet thread of, of the statements about the shedding of blood. When you get to Exodus, the story of the Exodus, you have the animals that are sacrificed and the blood placed upon the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. And then as you move on into the book of Exodus and Leviticus, you have the tabernacle worship and the Old Testament law, which are all surrounded with the sacrificial system. And in Leviticus chapter 17, it talks about the fact that the life of the flesh is in the blood and the significance of the blood. The prophets spoke of Jesus Christ as the lamb that was shed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And like a sheep to the slaughter, it says, Jesus Christ, uh, the prophecy says, he is going to be a sacrifice. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood, it represents the work of God, Jesus in a significant way. Hymns have often used the 
imagery of the shed blood of Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we were back in Gig Harbor and attended the church that we attend there, Harbor Covenant Church. And the worship leader introduced the song, a hymn that probably many of you are familiar with. I know as a kid, as I was growing up, every time we had communion service, this is one of the songs that we would sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And the worship leader introduced it and he said, to a modern audience, he said, I want to make you aware that it begins with some pretty gruesome imagery, a fountain filled with blood. But he said, as the songwriter moves it along, you begin to see the significance of the fact that it is through that blood that our sins are washed away. We, these days, have a difficult time identifying with that because we are miles away from the culture of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Several years ago, our daughter and son-in-law, they lived in Amman, Jordan. And there, they actually observed sheep being slaughtered on the streets as a ritual sacrifice. And our daughter took this picture, I think, of the uh, lamb in the wheelbarrow that was being taken to sacrifice uh, at, at that time. In Jordan, where the kids lived, the practice of, of uh, sacrifice was regulated by the government to limit the specific locations rather than people being allowed to sacrifice the animals in their individual homes. These people still have a basic understanding of what substitutionary atonement is all about. The book of Hebrews, perhaps more than any other place in the scriptures, helps us to understand the significance of Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. In chapter 9, verses 26 and following, and I just read it to help us to understand it. Verse 25, 24, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the high, way the high priest in the holy place every year with the blood that was not his own. Christ then would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared for once, once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is just, uh, destined once to die and after that face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear the second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who wait for him. The most extensive and the most complex of the images that we have of what Christ achieved on the cross is the fact that he became our substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice taking the punishment which rightly should have fallen upon us. The second image is the image of redemption or ransom. Jesus said of himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read, You're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. These images are taken from the, the idea of the marketplace. 
the manumission of slaves by the payment of a price so that they could be set free. We're slaves. Whether we know it or not, we're in bondage. Whether it be by addiction to drugs or alcohol or obsessive and compulsive behaviors or codependence on other people, because we have turned our backs on the Lord, our alienation from God, we seek to fill our lives with things to fill that void. Because we refuse to be dependent upon God and submissive to him, we therefore become obsessed with dependence on other things. And Christ came to set us free. Like slaves, he pays the penalty for our sin. And because of that, we have freedom. I've had several examples that help me to understand this idea of redemption or uh, uh, manumission uh, or ransom. Several years ago, I worked with International Bible Society doing evangelism training around the country. And one of the things that we did is we'd gather from time to time in Colorado Springs for training. And one of the other fellows who was a part of the team was a guy by the name of Ricky Bowden. Uh, years back, he played a lineman for the Baltimore Ravens, about a 6'8", 300-pound guy. And we roomed together for the time that we were there for training. But in one of our training sessions, we were required to share how we might uh, help people to understand what Christ had done for us. And Ricky Bolden, this big 6'8 uh, guy with 300 pounds, got up in front of us and he said, I want to tell you a story. He said, it's a story about a little boy. This little boy had worked on building a sailboat, a model sailboat. And he had spent hours cutting it out, polishing it, making the sails and so forth, and put a, a servo in it so that he could uh, sail it. And he put it in the, in the river, and he said he, he enjoyed sailing it for a while, and then it got away from him. And it went around the bend in the river and disappeared, and he lost his sailboat. And he was crushed and felt so badly that he had lost this precious thing that he had created. And he said, one day, this boy was walking down the street, and he happened to go by a pawn shop, and there in the window was his little boat. And he walked in, and he said, that's my boat in the window. And the pawn shop owner said, no, 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 that's not your boat. Uh, that's mine. I found it. It belongs to me. He said, but I, but I made that boat. It's mine. He said, well, if you want that boat, you're going to have to pay for it. And so he discovered that the price, and he went back and began to do all kinds of work and everything he could do to earn the amount of money that it would take to bring that boat back. And so he walked in with his money, and he went to this owner of the pawn shop, and he handed the money to the pawn shop owner, and he just says, here, here's what you asked for the price of that boat. And the man went into the window, took the little boat out, gave it to the little boy, and as he walked out of the pawn shop. He was cradling that in his arms and rocking back and forth. You can just see Ricky Bowden do this, the 6'8 guy, uh, rocking back and forth this little boat. And he said, little boat, little boat, now you are mine, twice mine, once because I made you, twice because I bought you. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of ransom. There's another story 
Perhaps you've heard this one. It's the story of Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe was a Catholic uh, priest who ended up in Dachau. And in Dachau, uh, I guess it was Auschwitz. It was in Auschwitz. And as he uh, was there, he was one of the captives. And in the course of his time there, a, a couple of people escaped from Auschwitz. And the uh, guards were so upset that they gathered 10 people from the area and they said, you 10 are going to die because of what this escape was all about. You're all implicated in it. And as they lined them up to march them to the gas chambers, one of the guys in the group of 10 started to cry out and he says, I have a family, I have children. And he just, he just wept. And Maximilian Colby, who was standing on the sideline, was so moved, he said, to the guards, let me take that guy's place. Nobody knew how the guards would respond to that, but they allowed him to do that. And so he stepped into the line of 10, and the other fellow stepped out. And those 10 marched off and were executed in the gas chambers. One taking the place of another, ransoming the life of another. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of this image of, just, uh, of re uh, redemption. The third image that we use to help us to understand what, the, what Christ achieved on the cross is by, used by one of these theological words, justification. And it's very significant that in the text that David read for us this morning, that becomes kind of the main theme, this whole concept of justification. In verses 21 and following, he talks about righteousness and the law. Now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And then it goes on and talks about the fight, fact that through Christ fulfilling the law, we have been set free from the law. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 and following also talks about that. It's the image here that the, uh, comes from the law and the legal profession. The commandments and the violation of the law by us means that we're guilty. We're made to, uh, righteous because not only does Christ's death on the cross cover our guilt and our shortcoming, but also we are given Christ's righteousness. Someone who's violated the law stands before the judge and pleads guilty. Again, another story that helps us to understand the concept of justification is perhaps to understand that someone who has violated the law, perhaps you've been speeding and got caught and you want to protest the, the ticket. And so you go before the judge and the judge says, how do you plead? And you know that you have done wrong. You know that you violated the law. And if you're going to be honest, the only thing you can say is I'm guilty, your honor. And they, the judge says, all right, here's what your, your penalty is. This is what you're going to need to pay. And you realize, don't have it. Can't do it. And you say to the judge, sorry, I don't have the wherewithal to cover the penalty for my guilt. And as you say that, the judge gets up off the bench, walks around, stands beside you, takes out his checkbook, and writes the full amount of what you owe and hands it to you. 
goes back and stands in the, uh, uh, on the judge's seat and he says, how do you plead? Guilty. Your fee is, and he, you have the wherewithal now to pay because of what Christ has done for you. You have been set free from the law of sin and death by the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. The fourth image is the image of reconciliation. In Romans chapter 5, it talks about the fact that, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then a bit later in verse 9 through 11, he talks about, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath through him? For if we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation means that the animosity, the alienation between God and humankind has been resolved because of what Jesus Christ has done. The image fits from the very beginning of the creation and the fall in the Garden of Eden, where fellowship and intimacy with God was broken, and alienation from God began. And the relational imagery of estrangement is predominant as we describe the effects of sin. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross was intended to show us that God loves us and he wants to win back those who have strayed. And as we find reconciliation with God, it indicates that we have been created to reflect God's image and to love others. Ephesians, uh, the epistle of John says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his only son to pay for our sins. We love because he first loved us. Any animosity, any alienation between God and humankind is resolved as the work of Christ is set, you know, set on our behalf. In first, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17, it says, we've been reconciled by God to Christ, by Christ to God, and we have the, uh, the ministry of reconciliation. Perhaps the best illustration of reconciliation is the story, the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son, who became alienated from his father and went off and did his own thing. But when he realized what he had done, he realized that he wanted to come back and make it right with his, heavenly fa with his father. And as he comes back, the father reaches out to him, embraces him, and extends his love toward him. The one what was lost has been found. The final image is the image of battle or victory. There's a couple of places in Scripture where it talks about what Christ has done. One of the most obvious is in Colossians chapter 2, where we read about what Christ has done. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations 
that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. During his life, Jesus cast out demons to show his power over evil. That he is the God of this world. That the cross brought a victory over sin and death. Originally, this one, really, this image was one that the, the early church grabbed onto perhaps more than any other. It's probably not as prevalent in our thinking about what Christ has done on the cross as in the past. But there are examples of it. For example, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells us about Edmund, who's been taken under the spell of the wicked witch, the powers of evil. And he betrays his brothers and his sisters. And then C.S. Lewis writes, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. What happened at the cross is that the forces of evil were defeated. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 and following, where it talks about where Paul talks so much about death, he, he writes these words. He says, But each in his own time, Christ the first fruits, then he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. He will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominions and authority. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when you get to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, you'll find in Revelation chapter 12, the words of uh, the people who uh, gather around the throne. Now have come salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accused them before God day and night has been hurled down. They've overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony that they did not love their lives as much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Think of all that's happened, all that Christ accomplished on the cross. You know, there's some sense as I was working on this that I wondered how many people care? How many people really take this all seriously? It seems like it's in another spiritual world. And we get wrapped up in our day-to-day -day affairs and the, the things that we're doing. And do we ever really stop to think that there's a lot more going on in the spiritual battle? And the forces that we have, as, G, uh, as Paul wrote, uh, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. But the answer to that is that Christ has been victorious. And we do not need to fear them. Before the throne of God above... 
I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with him, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my savior and my God. It's a time to rejoice. We're going to take communion, and as we take communion, I trust that all of these images will just kind of come back to you, and you'll begin to reflect as we spend some time in quietness, uh, reflect on all that Christ uh, means to us as a result of what he has done for us on the cross. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that scarlet thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation is the scarlet thread that moves through the cross of Christ on our behalf. And we pray, Father, that we might love you and appreciate you and honor you and serve you in response to all that you have done for us. And as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts, prepare our minds to think and pray uh, for praise you for all that you've done. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.